here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we're looking at the Beatitude, Blessed are the Peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We're looking at how when we encounter Jesus within, it brings about peace within that will work its way out into the rest of our lives. So without further ado, let's head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. We've been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount for the last uh, couple of months, and today we come to uh, the passage, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed, that word means happy, uh, content, joyful, filled with life are those who are peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Before I get into the text today, I want to get into a little of the context, um, because really there, there's a lot that we share in this modern day world with first century kind of ideas about peace. Back in the first century, they had this idea of the, the Pax Romana. I, I think I'm saying that right. Any Latin people want to correct me? Okay. Is there Pax or Pox? Pax. Anybody want to vote? Okay. Um, the Pax Romana, which meant the Roman peace. And that was kind of a, in the first century uh, at that time in, in, in the, the Roman Empire, it was actually an era of relative peace and calm. But here's the deal about Roman peace. It's kind of the peace that we understand today. It's peace through strength. It's the peace of the empire. Peace through intimidation. Peace through violence and coercion. Peace through power over domination. It's peace through the cross as a tool of terror. Now understand that the Romans, here's, here's a little something about Romans and the cross. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can execute people. And human beings have come up with a lot of horrible ways to execute people, but nothing can compare with the brutality of the cross. The Romans perfected an instrument of execution that, that was horrible if you got executed that way, but it was also uh, the ultimate propaganda machine. You know, we've, we've all been horrified by these, these um, videos that ISIS has been releasing of people being beheaded overseas. And um, the reason they do that, by the way, and the reason they put those videos up is to intimidate you. It's to make you fearful. It's to get a reaction out of you. That's, you know, that's why you feel that way. It's working. The Romans were the masters of this, though. If you were crucified, um, the Ro- it would take you several days to die sometimes. And you would die ultimately from running out of breath because you'd have to pull yourself up to take a breath every time. And eventually you just couldn't do it anymore. So it was a gruesome, uh, long torturous process to die. But you know what? The Romans, they wouldn't just leave it there. They'd leave you up on that cross for months. And you would basically be a billboard to anybody that got an idea that maybe we need to overthrow the Romans, that maybe that's not such a good idea. You mess with Rome, you end up on one of these things. And that was the Pax Romana. You know, we we can look at modern-day Iraq, especially recently, um, it's certainly not an area that we would say there's any kind of peace going on, right? 
Um, but we can look back to before we overthrew Saddam Hussein, and guess what? There was relative peace there. But it was kind of like the Pax Romana. <laughs> you know, the Shiites and the Sunnis and the Kurds, nobody was fighting each other. Why? Because Saddam Hussein was a madman who would do just what the Romans would do. You get out of line, you get destroyed in a horrible way. But this is kind of the peace that we think of in the world. It's peace through intimidation, through coercion, through power over, through outward domination. But I'll contrast this uh, with the peace of Christ. Oh, by the way, I I stumbled across this fact uh, about a year ago when we were going through the Gospel of John. Um, There was actually an uprising around the time Jesus would have been about eight or nine years old. And... uh, it, it was not very far from Nazareth where he, Jesus grew up. There was an uprising that was punished by the Romans. They killed 3,000 people by a cross. Women, children, men, in one day. Um, I think the population of, of Covington is, what, seven or 8,000 maybe, on the sign at least. Um, that's more than the population of Abita where I live. They killed 3,000 men, women, and children by execution on a cross in one day. And it says in the history books that you could hear their screams 20 miles away. It's likely Jesus as an eight or nine-year-old boy heard the screams of people being executed by a cross. So, so understand that the terror of the cross is something Jesus himself would have had to deal with just growing up. That's the terror of the Roman peace. We contrast that with the peace of Christ. Uh, you know, in the early church, they had this saying, still some churches use this saying. I love this saying. We need to bring it back. Uh, you know, the peace of Christ be with you. When you would, when you would uh, run into one of your fellow believers, you just say, hey, the peace of Christ be with you. And that, 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 that term peace, it didn't mean absence of conflict. That wouldn't have made any sense in the early church anyway. I mean, it was just conflict everywhere. I mean, people were actually getting crucified after Jesus in the church, you know, persecuted horribly. The, the saying, the peace of Christ be with you, it was, it was rooted in the Old Testament concept of shalom. And shalom isn't, isn't simply that, that nothing's happening and you're, you're having one of those days where everything's going right. Shalom is that you're, you're experiencing the wholeness of the kingdom of God on the inside. Everything is put right. Everything is in harmony. And that's the peace of Christ. It's not a peace that depends on circumstances, but it's a peace that, that gets on the inside. Maybe you're experiencing a little of that even in worship this morning. The peace of Christ is through power under, through humility, love, serving, mercy, compassion. You know, one of my favorite passages, and I pull this one out all the time, is Philippians 2, where Paul actually quotes a hymn of the early church. He says, in your relationships with one another, consider Jesus, who though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or used to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself, taking the lowest place, even the, the humble place of a slave, a servant. We see this when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, the most menial job. It says Jesus was obedient, obedient even to death on a cross. And he was vindicated by his father, raised from the dead, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess 
that Jesus is Lord. We see that this peace of Jesus it is through humility. God, he steps aside from his kingly robes. He steps aside from all, the, all this stuff, that, this equality with God, and he becomes one of us, the lowest kind of one of us. We see the peace through the cross. But unlike the Roman peace through a cross, this cross of Christ actually, actually reveals the heart of God. I love what Greg Boyd says. He says, when God, when God flexes his omnipotent muscle, it doesn't look like Rambo, but like Calvary. When God flexes his muscle, it looks like Jesus laying his life down for the very people who hung him on it and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. You want to see the power of God? That's it. The peace of Christ is demonstrated in enemy love rather than through retribution. See, the, the, that, that's what got Jesus in trouble so much with the religious crowd. They wanted, they wanted a, a retributive God, a God who was going to kick their enemies' butts and, and destroy. And, and what they found in Jesus was a Messiah that wasn't playing that game of world domination and control and violence. They found someone who was humble, who was simple, who was loving and who was in humility, who loved his enemies rather than seeking retribution, who extended forgiveness rather than vengeance. And that's the difference between the Pax Romana and and the, the, the peace of Christ. And I want us to hold these two ideas in our minds as we look into this passage today because I really believe, you know, the, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world's thinking. That, that, that idea is be squeezed into a mold. Don't be squeezed into the mold of the way this world thinks. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I, I'm convinced today that so many of our ideas, even when it comes to the idea of peace, they're not based on the Bible. They're not based on Jesus. They're based on our politics. They're based on our nationalism. They're based on where we're born. They're based on our place in society. And, and we honestly, we need to come humbly before the Lord and say, God, search me, know me, make these things straight. Let me be transformed by renewing my mind around your ways rather than conformed to my political party's agenda or this nation's agenda or my family's agenda. Let me, let me be transformed by your ideas of peace. The Beatitudes, as I said a few weeks ago, there's kind of a progression going. You can't start off, if you've been in Alcoholics Anonymous before, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, you can't start off with like step eight, right? Um, I won't ask any of you who are in there because you're supposed to be anonymous. So um, <laughs> I won't get confirmation on that. But my sources tell me uh, you can't start off with, with, with like, I'm going to skip steps one through five and just go ahead and go with six through, through ten. No, you actually have to start with step one. If you don't do step one, you can't go on to step two or three. And I, I believe the Beatitudes are the same way. You can't just launch into uh, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy apart from actually receiving the mercy of God that he extends to the poor in spirit. So the first four Beatitudes are actually how God uh, comes to us in our broken state. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are sad, who are mourning, who are depressed. Blessed are, are the meek, the simple, you know, the ones just trying to make it. 
Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Those who just long for it to be going right. Are you in that place today? That's where Jesus meets us. This, the first four Beatitudes are about our condition where we encounter the Lord. But the second four are about our relationships with one another. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who, who see out of a pure heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We don't start in the Beatitudes with doing. We start with being. But then it works its way into doing. See, the thing is, there are ideas in the church nowadays that sometimes we get fascinated with just how God sees us, and we want to just stay there. Like, it feels so good, God, that you love me. I love this. But, but ultimately, God doesn't want us just basking in the glow that he loves us. He actually wants to change the world through us. But it doesn't start with doing stuff. It starts with being, encountering God in our brokenness. And out of that place, God will love the world through us. He will bring peace through us. You are not the point, but a point in what God's trying to do. You know, in my years as a Christian, or certainly as just a human being on planet Earth, um, I have... I have seen various scandals sweep the church. You know, I remember as a kid, there was all kind of televangelists popping up in the 80s and stuff. And sometimes you would hear, and I'm not going to name any names. I ain't going to name names today. But you know who I'm talking about. Um, But there were people, you know, televangelists who would make their whole ministry about fighting sexual immorality, you know, and and pointing out all, all this stuff. But then you find out down the road... Uh, this guy's seeing a prostitute, you know, he's, it, I, I, there was a guy a few years back that, that very powerful in the evangelical movement who was crusading against homosexuals and, you know, we need to fight all these things. And it turns out, well, uh, he was doing a little of that himself. Uh, I remember as a new Christian, I, I would, I was listening to the radio and uh, I would listen to AM radio, which is a horrible place to get theology from because it's just all over the place. It's just a mix of conspiracy theories and weird interpretations of the Bible. And I mean, it's, it's bizarre. Sometimes it's fun to listen to late at night between that and the, the UFO program. But, um, <laughs> but I remember listening to this guy. His name was, well, his, his title is kind of a, kind of a, <laughs> An arrogant title, Bible Answer Man. Like, <laughs> you want to know the answer to anything, call this dude up. And so people would call him up with, with the answers to everything in the Bible, and he would tell them. But what I l- figured out after a while is that this guy's whole ministry was about uh, erasing doubt. It was about finding heretics. Have you ever been around some, or, or come across this stuff on, online? There's entire ministries that are heresy hunters. Their whole mission is to point out how wrong everybody else is in their doctrine. And, and even as a young Christian, I didn't know any better, but after a while, I just started feeling like icky. But the point is, I think that this guy who, who, who spends his whole ministry trying to erase doubt, I suspect that deep within, he struggles with doubt. 
And his whole ministry is a way of pushing down his doubts because he's afraid if this stuff isn't true or or if he has any doubts, then it's all going to fall to pieces. Just like the guy who spends his whole ministry pointing out sexual sin in other people, uh, it's really projections because he, he is terrified of his own sexual questions. He's terrified to let Jesus into those places, and so he's got to point it out in everybody else. And we only do that to the extent that we haven't encountered Jesus in our poverty. And let me tell you, from personal experience, it's possible. My first seven years as a Christian, I became a Christian the way many people came become a Christian. I was desperate. You know, my life was a mess. And I'm like, you know, prayed the sinner's prayer. You know, it wasn't because I cared a whole lot about God, but I certainly knew what I was doing wasn't working. And that's the way a lot of us come to faith, right? And I jumped into ministry immediately. I mean, within a couple of months, I'm, I'm leading, you know, working with a youth camp. And then I moved down here. I'm doing college ministry. I'm doing mission stuff. I'm like on fire. I wasn't one of those lukewarm people that just shows up to church once in a while and sits in a chair. I ain't talking about anybody in here. But I was going to be fired. I was going to be on fire for God, right? And, and I did all this youth ministry stuff that was about being on fire for God. But the truth is... I was working my well to, way to becoming a fine little Pharisee hypocrite. <laughs> I really was. I knew a lot about the Bible. I was in church every time the doors were open. My prayer life would, would, would put current me to shame. <laughs> um, and, and the reality is, just like what I talked about with the Pharisees last week, I was blind to it. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. And I want to tell you a story today. Some of you, if you've been around here, you've heard this story, but bear with me again. It's my story. So I, I just, it's where God met me in this. And here's, here's what happened. I'd been a Christian for about seven years, involved in ministry. I'd been married probably about two or three years. And, and we had our daughter uh, about a year and a half into marriage, Te, uh, Tevia, my daughter. And then, uh, and then probably about a year after she was born, Dina got pregnant again, except she had a miscarriage about a month into it. And that, that's a horrible thing for any of you in here who've experienced that. That's, that's horrible. That's heartbreaking. But as bad as it was that first time, a year later, Dina got pregnant again. And she had another miscarriage. Now, the way we are as human beings is we can't help it, right? You, you, you just notice trends, right? <laughs> you know, two points make a line. Immediately, Dina goes into this, this, this guilt and this, you know, it, it, did I do something wrong? Is it my fault? And like the worst thing you can do is go online, <laughs> go to WebMD or something, you know, is, is like, am I eating something wrong? Yes. Uh, but, but even spiritually, did, did I offend God or is, is God angry at me? Did he take this baby? Well, about a month after that second miscarriage, she went to a retreat center in West Louisiana to get healed up, get some prayer. And she's there the first night. She meets with a lady that's running the retreat center. And the lady comes up to her, and she, she's like, look, I'd like to get some ministry. And so they sat down, and Dina began to bear her soul, expecting at the end, after she tells this lady everything that, that, that this lady is going to you know, pray for and stuff. Well, Dina gets finished telling her about the two miscarriages. And this is what the lady t- told her. She said, well, God created you uh, as a woman to to." bring a child to to terms. So if that's not happening, there's obviously some sin in your life. I had never 
experienced that kind of anger towards another Christian um, in, in my few years of being a Christian up to that point. I was just blown away. Somebody is broken. They're struggling. They come to you for help, and you just like, psh, it's just that you're obviously sinning. You need to get right with God. It's your problem. Dina calls me that night. She says, is it true? Did God kill this baby because of me? And, and I'm, I'm like, I'm just glad that this woman was a couple hours drive away because if she was close, I don't know what kind of stupid thing I would be uh, regretting <laughs> at the moment. But it was in this process, as horrible as this was, that God began to do something in my heart. See, I thought it was initially all about this lady. And I, I wrote some of my uh, most uh, raw lyrics to a song that I've ever written. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I was just like, God, I, I'm so mad. And it was in this moment that I began to experience the comfort of the incarnation of Jesus. That passage we read this morning during worship from, from Hebrews 4, we, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us. Rather, we've got this high priest who can totally empathize with us because he has experienced reality the same way that you and I do as a human. See, I knew kind of as a Christian, like God knows everything, as God, you know, he's out there. He can see everything. He, he sees you when you're sleeping, <laughs> knows when you're awake. He knows all that. You know, he's keeping records. But all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, the, the power of the incarnation began to, to just be a healing uh, presence in my life. I realized that that anger that I was feeling, Jesus had felt it too, not as God out there, but as one of us. He felt it as a human. He knew what it was like to be called the devil. He knew what it was like to be betrayed. He knew what it was like to have friends turn their back on him. He knew everything, not as God out there, but as a human. That rocked my world. I'm telling you, that was one of the, 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 the biggest paradigm shifts. That's why I talk so much about the incarnation around here every week. He knows what I'm going through. But he didn't stop there. So I had the comfort of yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've been there too. But it's as if I was opening my heart to God and reflecting that, that God began to walk me down memory lane. He said, yeah, you know what you hate about that woman? Let's look at your life for a moment. Now, what I want to say here is that when God brings something up, even something hard, it's, it's always in mercy and compassion it brings freedom, okay? It's not the accuser. <laughs> And Jesus begins to walk me down memory lane. He says, yeah, you know what you hate about this woman? Remember that time that that good friend of yours was struggling to pay his bills and came up to you, and your answer was, yeah, you just need to tithe more to the church because your finances are cursed? Remember that? <laughs> Who's that sound like? Remember that time when, when you were talking to that girl who had an abortion, and you, you, you had nothing nice to say to her? You just You just judged her to her face. You just criticized her for being a murderer. Remember that? Ugh. What Jesus began to show me is like, you know that you know what you hate about that woman? You are that woman. You're doing the same things. You've been doing them for years. 
you've hurt a lot of people and you didn't know it. And it wasn't because your heart was bad. It wasn't because you hated God. You, you love God. But, but, but it's because I hadn't encountered God in my poverty. I'd been a Christian for seven years and it was all external. It was zealous. It was on fire. You look at me in my church at that time. I'm the guy that get on stage to testify and to talk about things. You know, like, like I was valued for the way I, I lived Christianity. But it was all external. It was all on the outside. And for the first time in my life, I was beginning to see Jesus in my poverty, in my grief, in my hunger and thirst. I, and it was in that. And this is why I say this is when you know it's Jesus, when you know it's conviction rather than the accuser just pointing stuff out in you. Because it was so filled with grace. Jesus was like, not only do I know how you feel, you've done this to me. <laughs> and I forgive you. I release you. You're free to go. At that moment, I, I felt the, the forgiveness of God just as a, as a healing salve in my soul. And here's the deal. When I, when I began to emerge from that encounter, and it was probably over a period of time, but, but when I began to come out of that, I got to tell you, it wasn't so easy to point out my finger at other people who were either outwardly righteous or outwardly sinners because I realized that I had something in common with both of them. I had been so right, but I'd been so wrong. <laughs> and there were other people I knew who seemed outwardly so wrong and yet had, had something right too. I have found over the years that, that for all the, the, the finger pointing that the evangelical church wants to do at certain groups in our society, when I've actually gotten to make friends with some of these people, they've been, uh, it, oftentimes they have a love that puts the church to shame. I found it very difficult to be in an us versus them mentality anymore because I had something in common with both groups. And this is the idea of peacemaking. We don't start out as just great peacemakers. We, we become peacemakers as we encounter the grace, the mercy, the love of God in our poverty, in our lack, in our wants. Now, what's, what's awesome is that um, when this happens... It, it changes you. I couldn't play that game anymore. I don't need to hate in others what I hate in myself because I've experienced the forgiveness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God within. Something happens when we receive the gospel announcement of Jesus truly inside us. It changes us. Why am I more embracing of others right where they are? Because I have encountered God that way. I've received the mercy of God. What, can I, what room do I have to point at anybody? I got a lot in common with the Pharisee called Saul and a lot in common with the adulterous woman. <laughs> I've sinned on both sides. I can't point my finger. You know, Jesus says in this, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is one of two passages in Matthew where Jesus talks about children of God. 
In Matthew 5:43, which we'll probably get to in a few months, uh, Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is actually kind of tweaking their understanding of Scripture here. Because <laughs> they, they had learned to read the Scripture that, you know, you do good to the good guys and you hate the bad guys. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. Love your enemies. Love your neighbors too, by the way. <laughs> that you may be children of your Father in heaven. God doesn't pick sides the way we do. We like to think, oh, God's on the side of America. God's on the side of Israel. God's on the side of, of evangelical Christians, and he doesn't like Catholics, or he, he doesn't like Muslims or whatever. God, God doesn't pick sides the way we do. He causes his rain to fall on those who deserve it, those who don't. He doesn't play favorites. He is just generous and gracious with everything. That's our God. And Jesus says, when you step into this place of being peacemakers, when you begin to love your enemies, when you, then you're moving beyond what is, what is normal to us human beings. It's normal to keep sides. It's normal to hold things against people. But when you move into enemy love and forgiveness, guess what? You're bearing a resemblance to your heavenly father. You're showing people this is for real. I think that's one of the reasons people have so much, people outside the church have so much problem with people in the church. They look at us and we're vindictive, retributive, backbiting, grabbing for power. I think if we took Jesus seriously, they go, wait, those people look like Jesus. They will be called children of God. They'll be called that. The world will see. You know, I love, I love what it says in 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, I really believe that this, this projection that we've seen of, of people in ministry, and we do it ourselves, we all do it, you know, our, our, sometimes our, our obsession with the sins of other people is because of this fear that we have within, these doubts that we have within. And Jesus, uh, the, the Apostle John says, perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and we're not punished. We're not punished because of Jesus, because God's not like that. He doesn't punish us. He loves us. When we deal with that fear within, when we receive the love of God in our most shameful places, it changes us. And we emerge as people that can love our enemies. Joshua 5. Uh, this is an interesting passage in the Old Testament, which, by the way... Um, there's a thread in the Old Testament, and you can see it from the very beginning, where there's a lot of these kinds of passages. Um, Joshua 5, Joshua and the children of Israel are heading to the promised land. They get to Jericho, and it says, He looked up, and a man was standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or our enemies? Neither, he replied. 
But as a commander of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does the Lord have for his servants? The commander of the army, Lord's army said, Take off your sandals, for this place you are standing on is holy. And Joshua did so. We want to believe that God is on the, the side of the Americans. Or he's on the side of Israel against the Palestine, Palestinians. We want to believe that God is, is, is for the Republicans or the Democrats. But I love this passage in, in, in Joshua because he bumps into the commander of the Lord's army. It could have been Jesus. I don't know. Uh, he's like, whose side are you on? I ain't on anybody's side. Whose side are you on? <laughs> he doesn't say that. Well, it's South Louisiana translation. See, we've got this very distorted picture of God, and, and that's why I say we need to have our minds renewed in the light of Jesus. We don't get what we deserve, thank God, right? I'm thankful that God causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. I get in. <laughs> we don't get what we deserve. We get grace. And so if that's true, how can we not extend grace, mercy? How can we not stand and help people? I love what Anne Lamott says. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. And here's the deal. I'm not going to get into this too much today, but this beatitude flows into the next. Matthew 5.10, those who are persecuted because of righteousness, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we truly opt out of the game of us versus them, when you choose to stand in the middle of conflicts to bring the peace of God to bear, when you live in this world, not among the divisions of this world, but as a reconciler, when you step into that, guess what? You're going to make people mad on both sides. You're not going to be liberal enough for the Democrats. You're not going to be conservative enough for the Republicans. Uh, When you stand in those places, and God knows we need it right now. When I look at the racial tensions in this world, Uh, blowing up in Ferguson. We need people who are not playing the Fox News or the CNN game, but people who will just get in there and and, and love people and, and, and bring about God's peace and reconciliation. When I look at Israel and Palestine, we need peacemakers there. We don't need Christians who are standing on the side and just blanketly proclaiming that Israel can do no wrong. You know, God loves them. God loves Palestinians too. And guess what? There's a whole generation. If you're, if you're above the age of six years, six years old in Palestine, Palestine right now, you know what? You've grown up through three conflicts already in your life. Do you realize the post-traumatic stress that, that these kids that have seen neighborhoods bombed, who have experienced lack and want and hunger and poverty, you realize what that's going to do to them? We need people who can step in the middle of these things and bring the peace of Christ, who won't take sides, but who will, who will just say, I'm with God. I'm for anybody. <laughs> Democrat, Republican, black, white, Jew, Palestinian, rich, poor. I'm for anybody. 
Because Jesus is. Jesus is. He doesn't show partiality like we do. He causes his goodness to come upon everybody. But when you begin doing that, I can tell you right now, in the past few months, um, look, and, and I do feel like that. I feel like I'm way too conservative for Democrats, way too liberal for, for conservatives. Uh, I'm taking it from both sides. I remember when we moved our church into this building. You know what the reaction was from, from most of the Christians that I encountered from other churches? Oh, that's so awesome. You're moving next to a bar. Maybe you can shut it down. Hallelujah. I'm like, shut it down. We may give them some business. Uh, <laughs> but I remember when we were remodeling this building, one of the bartenders from over there, she came over one night. We're doing some work in this building before we were meeting in it. She's like, I'm not happy that this is going to be a church. I'm like, why? I'm just not, you know, because they felt like we're coming here to shut them down. We're here to protest. We're here to pick it. I'm going to shut that godless place, den of iniquity up. <laughs> so she's like, there's been some bad things that happened in this building. Right, well, hopefully it'll be some good stuff. And you know what? The people next door, they've come to see that we love them. We bring food over there. I'll go lead an open mic over there. I'm not here to take, I ain't here to shut anybody down. That's not my job. My job is easy. Well, (laughs) at least the job description. (laughs) It's very short. (laughs) Love God and love people. That's it. That's it. As soon as I get that down, I can move on to weightier matters like world politics and economics and stuff. But my, but my, my, my job is simple. Love God and love people. And I can't love people if I'm taking sides, if I'm picketing, if I'm, you know, embargoing and whatever it is that we do. In reality, I can't with good conscience do that when I know that Jesus has loved me both as a outward sinner, and as a Pharisee. (laughs) I can't. I've gone way too long. (laughs) Lord, give the children's workers peace. (laughs) Right now, let's stretch out our hands. (laughs) I just want to close for a moment with just just a little moment of reflection. Um, I was hoping to come up with some questions to reflect on, but I think in a real sense right now, every one of us in here is facing situations where we are being called upon to take sides. And I'm not talking about world things right now, okay? Uh, and by the way, I, I don't care about your opinions on anything. That's fine. It's great to have good political opinions on anything. I, you know, I love that we got Republicans, Democrats, Tea Party, Green Party. We got everything here. I'm, I'm, I think that's good. Okay, I'm not railing against anybody. Okay, some people think I do, but I'm not. I don't care. Um, But let's get down into your real world right now. Let's forget about Ferguson and Israel and Ukraine and Russia and all that. Let's get down into your real world. Um, Maybe you've got some friends that are going through a divorce right now, and you're being asked to take sides. You're being asked to take sides. And God's really calling you to stand between them and to love both of them. 
Maybe at your office, there's a lot of office politicking going on, and people are, are, are making groups to, to you know, the, the, the clicks and schisms, and they're, they're trying to overthrow the boss or just at least pick on him or whatever, even, even behind the scenes. Maybe today, you're, you, maybe what God's calling you is to be a peacemaker in those situations. And, and maybe some of you as high school students, maybe you're feeling that pressure in school. To divide among the cliques and the schisms of the high school world, which those are, they can put the national scene to, to shame, you know? Been there. Where is God inviting you to be a peacemaker today? Where is God inviting you to, to stand between people and help them towards Him, to be a reconciler? Where is God calling you to that today? Why don't you stand up? Jesus, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for your peace. We thank you that you are not like Rome and Caesar. You don't beat us into submission. You don't threaten us with uh, punishment. You don't force us to bow at the edge of a sword, Lord. But instead, you take the humblest place. You've served us. You've loved us. You've experienced the worst. And you've been vindicated by the Father, God. Lord, I pray today that whatever the fear is when the heart, within the hearts of people here in this room this morning, that your love would cast it out, Lord. That those who are just afraid of you, who think they're going to be punished, who uh, just think you're angry, who are afraid of life, who hate others because of their fear of others, God, I pray that that fear would be cast out in the name of Jesus and by the love of God. The peace of Christ be with you this morning. The peace of Christ guide you and heal you. Lord, help us to be peacemakers. In Jesus' name, amen.